This evening we are going to try and look at the whole of chapter 2. The chapter starts with a very triumphant section concerning the final prosperity of the kingdom of Christ. But then in verse 6 it returns to the main theme uh, which has been opened in the first chapter of Isaiah. The main theme being that God has a legal accusation against Israel that uh, she as a nation has broken his law. As it starts, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then comes the, the legal charge. Uh, and this is taken up again in chapter 2 and verse 6. It is spoken against Israel, or more specifically at this point of time, against Judah. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. And so it goes on. So we're looking at this uh, chapter, firstly under this particular um, heading that we, we learn from this chapter that at this time, some 700 years before Christ, in Israel, there was widespread idolatry and false religion. And we can immediately make a connection between the state of Israel then and the state of our own nation now. As I was trying to show last week, it's not to say that we uh, have the same status in terms of redemption history as Israel. Uh, That's a heresy. It's called British Israelitism and uh, there's no warrant whatsoever for it in the Bible. But still what is true of the covenant nation at, at this time, at Isaiah's time, there are applications that we can legitimately make. Uh, and the first is we see God's uh, hatred of uh, idolatry and false religion. You notice a number of things that are said about this as it prevails in Israel society. Notice that it's something of a global um, issue here. They are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. There has been religious influences from other nations. Uh, At the start, Israel did not entirely obliterate the Canaanites as they were commanded to do, and therefore the false religion of Baal and Asherah continued in the nation. And this, this over the centuries uh, became mixed in with uh, very similar idolatries uh, from Syria and Assyria uh, and from Egypt and so on. And we, re- we see here that the nation uh, is syncretistic. It's, it's absorbed all these other religious Ways They are pleased with the children of foreigners. That may be a reference to slavery. It may be some other kind of reference. And false religion has extended into the very culture, uh, into the very matter of trade in the land. All its attitudes are idolatrous. So in verse 14, we read about the Uh, High mountains, the hills that are lifted up, um, mountains uh, still today are often centers of religious shrines, Um, whether they 
uh, Eastern religions or so-called Christian religions, often you find shrines on mountains and various idols as well. And uh, we see that in, in religious culture and then in the existence and the uh, delight in the high towers, the fortified walls, the sort of militaristic idolatry, and the ships of Tarshish, the beautiful sloops, these boats, um, the reminder of the flourishing trade that had been going on uh, in Judah ever since the days of Solomon. We're reminded that there was uh, a human pride and a human arrogance uh, that filled their outlook on these various activities. And it is the worship of man himself that is very prominent in the nation. Uh, Verse 11, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down. Verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up. And then at the uh, end of the chapter, cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what account is he? And what Israel is here being accused of some 2,700 years ago is true of the whole human race since the fall of Adam and is particularly prevalent, I suggest to you, in our own nation. It is really expressed the same truth in Romans chapter 1 when we're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And then the chapter goes on to talk about the prevalence of homosexuality and of immorality and so on. And we often find ourselves perhaps thinking of those particular sexual sins and we forget too easily that the prevalence of such sins in society is in fact a judgment, the first installment of judgment, which itself has been triggered by an even more provocative sin in the mind of God, which is idolatry. The deification of the created order. The deification of man. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of God, in the, of, of the incorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man. So whether we're thinking of ancient Israel with its statues and its... Uh, idolatrous pagan shrines or whether we're thinking of the secular humanist outlook with its glorification of science or the hedonistic outlook with its glorification of celebrities 
or its glorification of human comfort and human pleasure or some other idolatry, we find that the very sins that so easily everyone in society is talking about, either for them or against them, it's actually the idolatry that's at the root of this. If there wasn't the idolatry of the created order, we're told God wouldn't give them up to these particular sins. It's the idolatry, worshipping anything or anyone other than God in Christ. And we don't have to literally bow down and prostrate ourselves on the carpet to worship. Worship can be putting anything or anyone or any activity or any priority on the throne that God alone should be occupying. Idolatry is worshipping or placing in such a, pers- such a position anything or anyone, anyone other than God in Christ. So it's not enough to say, yes, I worship God. It's God in Christ. Because Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ. And to profess the worship of God without coming through Christ is idolatry. And let us not think, if we are Christians, let us not think that we are immune from such pressures and such influences. We're surrounded by it. We knew it once before we were converted and we're surrounded by it still. And so the Apostle John says to us, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The closing words of his first letter, little children, he cares for us. He watches over us like a father over his children. Little children, keep yourselves from idols whether it's the idolatry of silver and gold, of wealth and comfort. There is no end to their treasures. Whether it's the idolatry of some kind of power structure. Their land also is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Whether it's the idolatry of what you are involved in, indeed the idolatry of yourself, and atheism, by the way, is an idolatry of self, They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself, that is, before other men, he says. So there's a widespread prevalence of idolatry and false religion. This is part of the covenant charge against Judah. Secondly, there is the dangerous exposure of vast numbers of people to God's judgment. Now, more is going to be said in chapter 3 about some of those judgments. There are judgments that work in the here and now. We've mentioned some of them in Romans chapter 1. But these are only the foretaste of far worse to come in terms of God's judgments. We notice some serious things which he says here about the judgment of God. The end of verse 9. People bow down and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. 
Here indeed is a solemn judgment. No forgiveness beyond the grave for the impenitent. No forgiveness beyond the grave for the impenitent. As the tree falls, there will it lie. If you die in your sins, you go to hell. Secondly, we notice verses 17 to 22, the futility of idols in a crisis. A crisis that God brings about, and I think that's to some extent, I'm not saying I understand all that God is doing in the pandemic, none of us do. But surely this is one of the things he is doing. He's bringing down some of the idols, some of the things people think are indispensable to life. He's showing that they're not indispensable. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down. The haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. But then he moves into what Revelation 6 reminds us is in fact a description of the end of the world. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made, each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth terribly. And in Revelation chapter 6, these very words are used to remind what happens when finally the sky recedes as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid himself in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand in the very place where they worshipped idols in the mountains? They cannot escape the wrath of God, the humbling of man, the exaltation of God. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. The whole purpose of God's judgment is to exalt his holy and glorious name and to humble man in his sin. There's a very real sense in which that is also the purpose of what Jesus Christ did at Calvary for sinners. It's a very real sense in which we can say that the great purpose of the cross was to glorify God and to humble man. That is what Paul is saying in first letter to the Corinthians as he speaks about the foolishness of the message as as man sees it. The foolishness of the gospel. Jews require a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Here is a man dying on a cross on a Roman execution gibbet. And he's there in weakness. 
There's no celebrity about it. There's nothing to uh, nothing of oratory about it. Nothing of apparent wisdom and intellectual prowess about it. It's just a man being punished. But he's being punished for the sins of the world. And so God confounds all the things that man so think so thinks so important. He confounds all of that in the way in which he deals with the, the problem, which is sin itself. And he exalts himself as the one who was there in Christ, reconciling the world to himself by his death upon the cross. Now what is true of the cross is also true of the final judgment. God alone will be exalted in that day and man will be humbled. And you see the application is so clear, is it not? You and I, we cannot dethrone God. We cannot fight with God. We must submit to him. And far, far, far better that he is glorified in your salvation and my salvation than that he should be glorified in sending us to hell forever as we would deserve. And then thirdly, we have in this passage the promise of final victory in the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact is, God is going to win the battle, as the beginning and the end of this chapter makes clear. And this is the astounding thing in the book of Isaiah. You have these legal arraignments, you have these legal cases put forward these accusations they're unanswerable the people are guilty and yet right amongst them you have these amazing gospel offers of mercy we found it in chapter 1 verse 18 come now and let us reason together says the lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they shall be as wool and we find as we go through this book there there are inexplicable moments of incredible mercy we find it in chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 God says I will turn my hand against you but then he says I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning afterward you shall be called the city of righteousness the faithful city Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. Then he returns again to the destruction of transgressors and sinners. But then again, there is this statement. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. What we have here is the promise of victory for Yahweh and for the gospel as we look at this through New Testament eyes. We said that the mountains were places where, of religious worship, even amongst idolatrous religions. And Isaiah is using this image as he talks about the mountain of the Lord's house, which is Mount Zion, being established on the top of the mountains and being exalted above the hills. This is the, the triumph of true religion which is centered on Jesus Christ and he's effectively saying that this true religion is centered in Jerusalem it's centered in the temple 
And through New Testament eyes, we see that that points us directly to the Lord Jesus Christ, who said of himself that if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And he was referring not to the temple of Solomon, but to his own body, the temple of his body. He was saying, in effect, I am the fulfillment of the temple. I am the place where you meet with God. I am the place where the law of God is enshrined. I am the holy of holies. I am the mercy seat. I am the place where the blood is shed and sprinkled upon the sinner. And later on in John's Gospel, he says to the woman of Samaria that the time is coming when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, at that point, whichever mountain it is physically will be irrelevant because it's worshipping him in spirit and in truth. In other words, through Christ, through meeting him in Christ. And here, amidst all the accusation the true accusation, and amidst all the emphasis of judgment to come, God is saying, yet I still will exalt my son, I still will exalt the gospel, and the gospel will triumph. It will be raised above every other hill, and all nations shall flow to it. It's an international victory. And the gospel will do what other agencies cannot do, what the idols cannot do. It will bring about the beating of swords into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. They glorify their horses, they glorify their chariots, their armies. But that doesn't lead to a cessation of violence. That doesn't lead to world peace. They glorify their wealth, they glorify their trade, they glorify their business associations and their corporations. But that will not lead to world peace. They glorify man and sport and art and trade and political structures. But the only thing which will bring about the beating of swords into plowshares, the turning of spears into pruning hooks, is the gospel of Christ. And it will do it. The gospel will do what no other agency can do. And although God uses some of these other things in his common grace to make this world a little less awful than it otherwise would be because of sin, it's only the gospel that finally will unite men and women. And you notice it's an international effect. Many people, all nations flowing to it. Many people saying, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. This is not the unification of some kind of political tyranny. This is an inward desire. They spontaneously say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths. In effect, what we have here is an Old Testament statement of the precious truth we find in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 13 to 16. As Paul talks about the effect of being saved to the Ephesian Christians, 
who were by and large Gentiles, non-Jews. As he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not just brought near to God, but brought near to those from whom you were alienated humanly. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, this dire enmity between Jew and Gentile, this dire enmity between man and man, this enmity indeed between man and God because of man's sin. Christ, through his blood, makes peace peace with God and then he changes the heart of the person who has been converted and there's peace between man and man and he came and preached peace to those who were afar off and to those who were near for through him we both have access by one spirit to the father the promise of final victory in the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ Idolatry and false religion is the context. That's where people are. Exposed to judgment. That's where most people are. It's a tragedy. And yet he says the gospel, the mountain of the Lord's house will one day triumph. So what are we to do, friends? Well, if we're not converted, if you're not converted... I say again, you you cannot dethrone God. You cannot fight with him. You must learn to seek him. You must learn to repent of your sin and believe on Jesus. But what can you do if you're a Christian? Well, you and I must do what it says in verse 5, and it's speaking again, remember, to people, a few believers, a remnant, in a context where most people were given to their idols. Here's what we should do. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. They may not be, but one day they will be because of this vision that he has. They're not doing it, but we can anticipate the glorious day. This is surely one of the things that's going on as we worship God Sunday by Sunday. We're anticipating. We are fleshing out what he says will one day be true universally. We're hastening the day. Faith is like a telescope. It brings things that are far off near. And our faith and hope and love are bringing far off things near. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord.